Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. Okay, guys, you might have been in this position at some time before. Put yourself there, the produce department. Now, it might be Walmart Supercenter, it might be a grocery store. I, I, I don't know where it is for you. I do know this, um, because I worked at a Walmart Supercenter for a period of time. It is, something, it is something that they do in the produce section to try to, to, try to, to build little traps, okay? And what that means is, is when, you, when you take watermelons or cantaloupes or something, you've got to stack them in just the right way so that if the wrong, wrong one gets pulled, they all fall down. That's, that's the way this works. And you know what they do? This is a part of what they do. It's planned. You put the really good ones on the bottom. Okay? The ones that everybody wants. So, you come here and you try to do your best. Indiana Jones. Alright? Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know what I'm talking about. Okay? So, you young people probably don't know, but it's a classic movie. And, and so, you see, you see the watermelon that you want. It's right there. Okay? You know that the only way to get that watermelon out is to find one that's not as good, but that's the same size off the top. You understand what I'm saying? And then you've got to pull that one out, put the other one in before they all collapse. And just like Indy, all right, you get it done, you walk away pretty proud of yourself, and then you hear the rumble. You hear the rumble, and here it comes. And then you walk away like you had nothing to do with it. All right, don't act like you haven't done it before, Okay. You know the thing about it, anything that happens like that, whether it's in the Walmart produce section or in the parking lot, all right, people are attracted to a scene. There's something about a scene that fascinates people. Now, depending on the type of scene that it is, it can be fascinating and it can be something that you want to see, but at the same time, it can make those who are observing it very, very uncomfortable. Right, at this point in time, as we look through Acts chapter 1, we find the disciples in Jerusalem waiting. And that's what they are told to do. They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. Um, Remember, for most of them, Jerusalem, Judea, that region was not home. Most of them were from up north in Galilee. That will play a role in what we look at today. Well, what happens? I mean, Jesus is gone now. We were looked at that a couple of weeks ago. He ascended into heaven. They're in Jerusalem waiting, and then the day of Pentecost arrives. Now, a little bit of details about that, just so you understand. Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, is the 50th day from the first Sunday after Passover. Got that? You got that? Okay. It's the 50th day from the first Sunday after Passover. Now, it wasn't only called the day of Pentecost. It was called some other things in the Old Testament. It's called the Feast of Weeks. Or it was called the day of first fruits. And what that meant is that was the day that people would bring their dedicated portion of their wheat harvest to the Lord. And now bringing that all full circle, it is a, it is a feast, it was a celebration that people would show up. If you wanted to do this right, you had to, this, this had to be, take place where the temple was and that was Jerusalem. And this is the amazing thing about our God. He is all about timing. So there are people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Jews, I should say, and proselytes, which is a Gentile who had converted to the Jewish faith. And they are from all around that part of the world, and they're gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost, the feast of first fruits. And speaking of first, this would be a day of firsts, all right? Like no other day had ever experienced before. Let's take a look at it. Verse 1, Acts 2. It says that when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now this one place, 
People have debated about exactly where this is at. Is it the upper room where the disciples had met with Jesus before his death on the cross? Um, is it, uh, and, and they had seemingly spent quite a bit of time there for now, or what was it, was it another residence near the temple? Some have assumed that this upper room was close to the temple. That is important, as we'll see here in just a second. And guys, we have to understand something. So far in the book of Acts, it's been pretty quiet. Now, there's nothing quiet about watching Jesus ascend into heaven, okay, and a cloud receive him from their sight. But remember, there were only a few, just about 120 people who witnessed that. It wasn't like this great, huge crowd who had seen this take place. And up to this point in time, the book of Acts has pretty, been pretty quiet. The people involved have been pretty patient, just waiting. It's been kind of understated, right? That's all about to change, okay? Everything is about to change. Look at verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. There are so many questions about this that simply can't be answered. I mean, that's just the way it is. Here might be a few of them. Was it an actual wind, or was it just a sound like there was wind? I mean, was there this little mini typhoon tornado thing going on inside the house where they were at? Or was it just, was it just simply the sound of the wind? Here's the next question. Did the disciples only hear this, or, or did others hear it as well? Now, we'll see that there's a crowd that shows up, but they might have shown up just because of what happens next, and the sound coming from the apostles, as we will see. Here's another question. What about the fire side of this? Um, what did this, these tongues of fire look like? Okay, now I'm just kind of imagining this. They're in this room, probably pretty good size because as we've seen in the past, it's, it's probably bigger than just the group of apostles, although they're the focus of this, the disciples, the, those 12 followers of Jesus. And I kind of picture like in the middle of this room, this flame coming down. All right, and then this flame separating and coming over to rest. It says rest. Now, the word could also be translated sit on the apostles. Okay, here's another thing. If you're one of those apostles, okay, man, there might be a few people here. We might have some pyros in here. Okay, I'm assuming this is a time of year pyros have a lot of fun. All right, they're setting fires and they don't get in trouble for it unless the wind's blowing 35 miles an hour. Do not set a fire if the wind's blowing 35 miles an hour as a member of the volunteer fire department. Now, please, thank you very much. Right, Larry? Who sets a fire when the wind's blowing 30 miles an hour? Some people. I don't know who they are, but they do it. Okay. So these guys are sitting in this house. By this time, they might be standing. They see these flames coming towards their head. I don't know if I'm sitting there, all right? I just don't know. But they are completely captivated by this, and they stayed put. Now, here's a few things we need to pull into this. A few things we need to pull into it. When we look to the Old Testament, wind and fire plays a role. Matter of fact, um, there's, there's one place in particular where wind and power and the spirit kind of all comes together. And it happens in, in, in the prophet's work of Ezekiel. One of the major prophets because he wrote quite a bit. And maybe you, maybe you don't know exactly where this is at, but you might have heard about this valley of dry bones thing. It was a vision of Ezekiel. And God told him in this vision, you will prophesy over these bones and these bones will come to life. 
And the result of that will be an exceeding army. And as in this vision, as Ezekiel does this, there is the sound of a wind that comes. And the bones begin to move. And then it says something else about the breath of God. See, when you see the Spirit of God in the Old Testament in the Hebrew language, it is the exact same word used for breath. So when the wind, the breath of God shows up in the Old Testament, it usually signifies some power. Now, Jesus mentioned a little something about this. He was having a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. We spoke about that a couple weeks ago. And in part of this conversation with Nicodemus, this is what Jesus has to say about the Holy Spirit of God. He says this, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it's going. And he says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. Now beyond that, let's go to fire. And when we see fire show up many times in the Old Testament, it, is, it has something to do with the divine presence of God. Think about that burning bush. Like I said, it's that time of year where, where firefighters are out there fighting fires and you do not want to see a cedar tree light up this time of year unless you just enjoy a good show, all right? I mean, those things go this time of year and it's going to be something. But imagine, imagine this, Larry. You've seen some of those cedar trees go up before. Imagine looking at that cedar tree and you watch it for the next 15, 20 minutes and it never burns up, but it's on fire. Is that going to catch your attention? Absolutely. Caught Moses' attention. He shows up, first thing is told to him when he shows up and sees this bush burning, but it's still there, is take off, take off your shoes, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. And then you follow that with this pillar of fire that goes along with the people of Israel after God's taken them out of Egypt and is heading towards with them to the promised land. And then one of my favorite accounts in all of scripture happened between Elijah and some prophets of Baal in this little contest that they had. You set up a Baal, you set up a, a, an altar to your God, Baal. I'll set up an altar to the God, God, all right? And let's just see who, who, burns this, who burns this sacrifice up. And fire from heaven fell upon the altar of God, not only consumed the sacrifice, but burn up the stones too, all right? We're talking about some fire here. And not only that, fast forward a little bit, just like we did with Jesus, the guy who came to prepare the way for Jesus, his name was John the Baptist. And people were coming to him to be baptized. And this is what he said. He said, I baptized with water, but the one coming after me, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? And fire. So there's a lot of questions I have about all of this taking place. But there can be no question about what happens to the disciples. The Spirit of God, God's Spirit came on them with power in a way that had never ever happened before you know something about people in general mankind if you will we have always been fascinated by power now we're fascinated by power that is explainable like a lot of horsepower in a car all right i mean we can kind of explain that some of us well i shouldn't put myself into that camp some of you can explain that how that works all right uh and, and that that is something that we like most not some you most i'm gonna say most people like a fast car all right we can understand that but you know what gets more attention than explainable power is unexplainable power I watched a movie back in college watched it with the girls and don and i were like both had both of us have watched it long before we met and um we didn't remember how many dumb cuss words were in the thing good grief i don't know i just didn't hear them when i was a kid or something like that i don't know but 
this movie, you have something take place. It's all about tornadoes, all right? And somebody asks this question, they say, can you explain an F5 tornado? And maybe some of you remember the explanation. It's the finger of God. It's the finger of God. Because it is unexplainable. Look what happens next here. Beginning in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because of what they were, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. There's another thing that happens in the Old Testament that we should not forget because the day of Pentecost, it reversed it. it has a little something to do with a tower. It's early Old Testament. This is, this, is after, this is after Noah and the ark and the flooded earth. And this is after the earth was replenishing itself with people. And there are a lot of people and they all spoke the same language. And they said, you know what? Let's build a tower to our glory. A tower all the way to heaven. And God didn't like the sound of that. We call it the Tower of Babel. Because after that, it was just like babbling. <laughs> I mean, that's, the rest of what, that's what we think of. Because God confused the languages of the people. And when people can't understand what those around them are saying anymore, it happens every time. They separate and they go different directions. Well, guess what? This day of Pentecost reversed all of that. And it brought people together. The power of God can repel, but the power of God can draw as well. Now Luke's going to give us a few more details. We're going to go through this really quickly. I preached way too long in the first service, all right? Verse 7 says this, these people who come and they see what's taking place, it says they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? I love this part. We've talked about Galilee quite a bit when we were looking at the life of Jesus. Jesus went to Galilee to get away from the hubbub, all right? You, you, you have Judea, that's where Jerusalem is at. Above that, you have Samaria. Okay, those are the people who don't get along with the Jews very well. Up above that, north of that, you have the region of Galilee. Most of Jesus' followers were from Galilee. Jesus spent a significant portion of his ministry, the majority of his portion ministry in Galilee. It was known as the boondocks, the hicks, if you will, the rednecks. That's the way it was known. It wasn't like they were completely uneducated, but this was not the place that, I mean, Galilee was not considered this great educational hub, okay? And they're like, these guys are from Galilee. How in the world can they be doing this right now? And you might think, well, how do these people know these guys are from Galilee? They've been hiding for a few weeks now. Well, unfortunately, Peter knows all too well that his accent as a Galilean is very recognizable. You might remember when Peter heard from Jesus this statement. He said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter is in the courtyard of the temple, just kind of keeping a distance, just trying to keep his eye on Jesus. As Jesus is being questioned, as Jesus is being beaten. And three different times, Peter is called out said, you're one of those guys, you're one of those Jesus guys. I've seen you with him. And one of them says, your accent gives you away. 
you're a Galilean. So fast forward to the day of Pentecost, and everybody's looking around. These guys are from Galilee. These are rednecks from Galilee. How in the world can we be hearing them speak in our languages? So let's continue on. We're going to get a few more details from Luke. It says this, are these men not speaking? Are they not Galileans? In verse 8, and how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And then we get a pretty impressive list of where the people are from here that day. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome. It's kind of important. We'll get into that in a second. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. You see, Pentecost had brought quite a collection of people to Jerusalem from all around that part of the world. It's interesting that Luke brings up visitors from Rome. You see, as we, by the time we wrap this whole Acts study up, we will find out that the Apostle Paul, at this point his name's still Saul, and he hasn't showed up yet. But he's one of the bad guys at this point in time. He hadn't become a good guy yet. And it was his goal to get to Rome. But people have wondered for years, how did the church get started in Rome? Paul didn't start it, somebody else did. And and, and nobody really ever gets credit for starting the church there. Well, who knows? It might have gotten a start from some people who are in Jerusalem celebrating the day of Pentecost and took this new message of Jesus home with them. So we got people from all over the place here, okay? And everyone is hearing what is being said by the apostles in their own language, and not only their own language, their own dialect. And they're like, how can this be taking place? You see, the Jews of that day were spread out quite a bit, guys. 500 years before this day, when the Jews were taken in captivity to Babylon, a lot of them never came back home. They just spread. The fancy name for it in history is called the Jewish Diaspora. They were scattered. So you got people from all over the known world back here celebrating the day of Pentecost. And this happens. And they're looking around. And all we get to this point about what these guys are saying in all of these languages is this. They're talking about the mighty deeds of God. Now, I'm guessing from what we get from Peter next that they're talking about the incredible resurrection power of God. That's just a guess. We will see later, all right? But everybody's seeing this take place and they're like, there has to be an explanation. You see, we as people, mankind, and I'm going to lump us all into the same boat here, all right? We have never really been satisfied with, quote unquote, unexplainable okay if we can't come up with an explanation we kind of have a problem with that it's like there has to be an explanation to what has taken place here and you know what our world will make an explanation even if explanation makes no sense (laughs) I mean seriously you can apply it to all different sorts of places all different sorts of, uh, of topics But it just truly 
blows my mind that some brilliant people in our world, and I mean brilliant people, can actually believe when they look around this world and they look and see that universe beyond, can actually believe that all of that came about out of chaos with nobody governing it. That makes no sense to me at all. Okay? If I'm in the woods walking around and I find somebody's eye watch, I don't think, what tree did that come from? Well, that's a good tree. That's a pretty powerful tree. I think somebody made that. Somebody designed it, okay? This world is infinitely more complex than an eye watch. But when you can't come up with an explanation that suits you, got to come up with an explanation somehow. So let's see what happens next. We've got something unexplainable taking place in Jerusalem. And there's two different ways people go with this. Look at verse 12. They were all, they all continued in amazement and with great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? So you've got one group observing this taking place and their reaction is, this has got to mean something. What does it mean? And that's the group you want to be a part of, all right? That's the group that is honest enough to see what's taking place and say, this is unexplainable. We need to figure out why this is happening. Okay? There's got to be some significance to these these great deeds of God thing these guys are talking about. So that's, that's one group of people. Now flip this over to the other group. Verse 13. But others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. <laughs> okay. Now just for a moment here. You've got people from Galilee, okay, rednecks from Galilee, speaking in dialects. And languages that they do not know. I don't think the first place I would go for an explanation is they're drunk. I've, I've, never, I've never seen an excess of alcohol make somebody smarter. Okay? I, 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 just, I just haven't seen it. Haven't seen it. All right? Um, but what this does tell me, this, what does, this does tell me is we don't have these disciples up here in their scholarly clothing just dictating truth all right now they are giving truth but understand something brothers and sisters there's an excitement involved in this scene as well they're excited about what they're saying and that excitement was being misinterpreted of these guys are drunk you know one of the first things peter says in his message as we'll see next week and I don't know if it's the place I would go if I was Peter, but he's Peter, okay? He says, it's way too early in the morning for these guys to be drunk people. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of his explanation that he starts with, all right? Here's the deal. There's some excitement involved here. And they're a part of this group that cannot explain, they cannot understand what is taking place. But more than that, what is being said by the disciples is rubbing some of them in the crowd the wrong way. That's what makes me think that they're talking about the resurrection power of our God. And it's making some in this crowd very uncomfortable. 
And they have to come up with an explanation, even if it's as dumb as, well, they're drunk. I told you last week, we, can, we just cannot do justice to Acts chapter 2 in one week. We can't. So we're going to shut things down right here. And I'm going to encourage you to continue to look at what happens in the rest of Acts chapter 2. Because next week, brothers and sisters, what Peter says to this crowd changed everything. But as we're waiting to get there, there's something else that I want us to think about here for just a moment. And it's this. That day, the Holy Spirit showed up in a big way. In a way that had never happened before. Now don't get me wrong, the Spirit had worked before this. I just just showed you some places in the Old Testament. God worked through His Son, God worked through His Spirit. It was the Spirit of God that gave many in the Old Testament, some of the judges, for instance, their power and their strength. The Spirit had worked before, but the Spirit had never come upon somebody like this. And more than that, Peter's going to say something in this message, just going to blow the doors off those people who are listening. That Spirit is willing to live inside of you. See, when the Holy Spirit shows up, there's nothing comfortable about it. The Holy Spirit will make people uncomfortable. Initially, it'll make the one uncomfortable in whom the Spirit dwells. Acts 2, the sermon that we will look at next week, Peter says... He says, the Spirit can live within you. The people respond to his message as we will see. That's why Acts 2.38 is so great for this day. Because the people respond to the message. They say, what do we do? And Peter tells them, you repent and you get baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But he doesn't stop it there. He goes on to say that you might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God willing and ready to reside in you and sometimes the spirit that lives within us will make us uncomfortable last week we ended the message with this and I hope most of you I hope all of you prayed this this week I did I told you I needed to start doing this more that was a little bit of confessional time on my part and it's this to begin each day in this way Lord God let your spirit work in me and through me today Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. If we continue to pray that on a regular basis, buckle your seatbelt. Because where the Spirit will lead, the direction the Spirit will lead will not be comfortable for you. But that's not the only way that the Spirit can make people in this world uncomfortable. It's not the only way the Spirit of God can make His people uncomfortable. You know what, for someone witnessing the Spirit of God at work through his people, that is something that will throw people way off sometimes. What I mean by is this, sometimes the Holy Spirit, don't try to put the Holy Spirit in a box, folks, because the Holy Spirit will bust out of that box in a heartbeat. 
We have a tendency to do that. And sometimes the Spirit will show up in ways that are pretty, pretty mystifying. In our own personal lives. Spirit can still work in miraculous ways. Don't doubt it for a, don't doubt it for a second. Okay? But the Spirit also, and I want you to listen to this very closely. Sometimes the Spirit works through dramatic and even supernatural ways. But most times, the Spirit works powerfully yet simply in unnatural ways. And there's a difference between supernatural and unnatural. And this is what I mean. Folks, it's not natural for people in this world, Christians or non-Christians. It's not natural to care deeply, to have compassion for people who despise you. There's nothing natural about that. You know the person at work who stepped on you to get that promotion that you deserved? The person who slandered you in public? There's nothing natural about caring deeply for that individual. There is nothing natural about wanting the best for that individual. There is nothing natural, nothing whatsoever natural about helping someone who will never have the ability to help you back. That's very unnatural. This is what we're called to every day, brothers and sisters. I mean, JB's brought it up in our time of announcements. Being, bringing, building. Being a light. I mean, living differently in this world. Do you realize, most of the times we think about how the world is getting darker and it depresses us. The darker our world gets, the more opportunity we have to shine for Jesus. Because in the darker places, the light shines brighter. And when, and when we yield ourselves to the way the Spirit will work within us. The results of that will usually be, why are you doing this? I mean, think about it for a moment. You got somebody who's treated you like dirt for a long time now. And you act in love and compassion and do something for that individual they would never, ever expect. They're going to come to you and they're going to ask you a question. Why? You know what the answer for us always is when we're asked that question? We get it from Peter in the rest of chapter 2. People are asking, why? Why is this taking place? Peter, first part of his message, he just explains. He said, this was, this, was, this was prophesied, this was predicted. Your sons, your daughters would see visions. They would prophesy. They would see dreams. They would, they would these things, you see some amazing things taking place here. It's nothing, it's nothing that wasn't supposed to come. And once he gets done with that, he says, you know that Jesus guy that died here a few weeks ago? That one you put on a cross? He's alive. 
When we are asked why, the answer is always the same. Jesus. Why did you do this for me? Because my Lord Jesus Christ loves you. And because he loves you, that means I gotta love you too. (laughs) Now that might not be the way you should phrase it up, all right? That's always the answer. And guys, guys and gals, brothers and sisters, young and old, you yield yourself to this and you will get uncomfortable and you will make people uncomfortable. You want to make somebody who doesn't like you too much uncomfortable, be nice to them. They're like, what's going on here? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Because Jesus loves you. That's it. That's it. And I want you to spend eternity with him.